Hey there, it's Shamita here. Before we get into today's episode, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you love this show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and rate and review us. It helps other people find the show, and it helps us know what you're liking and want to hear more of. Thank you, thank you, thank you. On with the show. This is In Conversation from Apple News. I'm Shamitha Basu. Today, how two newspapers came together to finish the work of a slain journalist. On September 3rd of 2022, investigative reporter Jeff Gehrman was found stabbed to death outside of his home in suburban Las Vegas. Jeff had been a local journalist for decades. He had a reputation for holding the powerful to account, breaking big stories on everything from organized crime to political scandals, and had been with the Las Vegas Review-Journal since 2010. He hosted a podcast for them a few years ago called Mobbed Up. History tells us that anytime you take on the mafia, whether you're a politician like List, a law enforcement official, or a journalist, it comes with risks. List learned that firsthand. In the year before he was killed, Jeff had published several stories about a local elected official, Robert Tellis, a Democrat, exposing multiple scandals in his office. Tellis was openly upset by the reporting, he used to tweet about it angrily, and he ended up losing his re-election bid last summer. Days after Jeff was killed, Tellis was arrested and charged with his murder. Police say they found multiple pieces of evidence connecting Tellus to the crime. He maintains his innocence. When a journalist is killed, especially for doing their work, it sends a chill across the whole industry. This one felt so grim. And many newsrooms reached out to the Review Journal with condolences. But the Washington Post made an unusual offer. One of the editors at the Washington Post had reached out asking, What can we do? We have resources. We can help. That's Post reporter Lizzie Johnson. The paper was offering reporting resources to help finish the work that was still sitting on Jeff's desk. That's when I got the call from my editor asking if I would be willing to step up and do that. The story Lizzie got assigned to pick up ended up being a huge investigation into an alleged half-a-billion-dollar Ponzi scheme targeting Mormons. We'll get more into the details of that story in just a minute. But I started by asking Lizzie what her first thoughts were when she got that phone call, asking if she would take Jeff's reporting notes and run with them. Oh, it was it was an immediate yes. I knew I, I wanted to do this. I think I was a little paralyzed by the expectation of it all at first, where I was like, oh, Jeff is this incredible journalist who has been doing this work for decades longer than I have. And I really hope that I can do it in a way that would have made him proud. And, you know, if this is a story that would have had his byline on it, mm. then if it's going to have mine, I need to do it to the best of my ability to honor him and to continue his work and to show that just because you kill a journalist doesn't mean you can kill their stories. So well, I want us to come back to Jeff in a little bit and talk more about his legacy and his impact. But First, let's dive into this story of his that you picked up, because it's really quite a story. Tell us what state it was in when you first got assigned to pick up what was left on Jeff's desk. What did you know at that point about the story? So 
Before I even went to Las Vegas for the first time, Jeff's editor, the former investigations editor, Rhonda Prast, had sent me this email with a pretty thick paragraph where Jeff detailed the story that he wanted to tell. And in that memo, he had talked about shedding light on this really tangled web of corruption and money. And he named a couple of key players and said that he had court documents. And he hadn't gotten any further than that. Mm. So when I showed up in Las Vegas and went and saw the newsroom, saw his desk, met Rhonda for the first time, she handed me this thick stack of folders containing these court documents. They were really neatly arranged, stapled at the corner. And I just remember so clearly feeling like this was my first glimpse at the kind of reporter Jeff was. Mm. Someone who was very dogged, very organized. You know, I walked out of there with those folders and a sense of purpose knowing that, okay, this is where I start. Lizzie dug into those court documents and started piecing together the story of this alleged Ponzi scheme. According to filings from the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, this operation ran from 2017 to 2022 and was allegedly worth $500 million. It mainly targeted members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as Mormons, More than 900 people invested their savings. They had made this investment thinking that they were putting their money into essentially slip-and-fall contracts. So the sales pitch that they were given was, okay, Susie slipped and fell outside of the hotel, and she's going to be given $200,000 in 90 days. But she can't wait that long. She needs that money now. So we're going to front her a portion of that money and charge her interest And it's already been settled in court, so there's very little to no risk, and you will definitely get your money back. Hmm. And so if you choose to keep reinvesting that money, we'll give you a 50% annualized return. And so that was really exciting to some people. They had dreams for that money. That was their retirement money. They wanted to put a pool in the backyard or send their kids to college. Not to mention 50% is incredibly high. Some might say too good to be true. Too good to be true. But again, I think that's where uh, the part of the shared religion is a really big aspect of it. And so experts explained to me that this is, it had all of the hallmarks of what's known as an affinity fraud, which Mm. is where there is a higher level of trust within a group of people, right? Like these are people who you see every weekend at your children's soccer games, people you see at church, the grocery store, how the church is arranged. People attend church with people in their community, people on their street, people they live around. And so a lot of people never stop to think, you know, there are a lot of red flags here. Instead, they were like, oh, I really trust this person. And so I wouldn't give this investment the same sort of sharp eye that I would if someone I didn't know was selling me on this. Mm -hmm. So take us to the top of the Ponzi scheme. Who was at the top? So... At the top of this Ponzi scheme, allegedly, was this lawyer named Matthew Beasley. Who was not Mormon, correct? Who was not Mormon, no. But he had a friend who was Mormon, a former pharmaceutical salesman named Jeffrey Judd. And the two men knew each other because their sons played soccer together. They grew up playing on these leagues. And at some point, Matt Beasley, the lawyer, had represented Jeff Judd in a case And so what the Securities and Exchange Commission laid out in their filings is that at some point, the two men had a conversation about, you know, fronting this money to personal injury victims and bringing more people into it. 
It's a little unclear how much Jeff Judd knew from the very beginning, but the lawyer, Matt Beasley, did admit to the FBI that it was a Ponzi scheme and that it was never real, that none of those investments were real. So when you say it was never real, I mean, what what was happening? What was happening to people's money when they would put it into the pot? So sort of a classic Ponzi scheme thing where the money from new investors was used to pay the dividends of older investors, right. instilling this sense of faith that, okay, this is real. The money is arriving right on time, every single time, no defaults. That's actually a huge red flag. No investment is that secure that, you know, you would get the same thing at the same time every month or few months. Sure. The men at the top also held on to a lot of money and used it to fund very extravagant lifestyles, trips to the Caribbean, a private jet, multi-million dollar properties in Nevada, in Lake Tahoe, in Southern California. How were Beasley and Judd able to keep this scheme going in secret for as many years as they did? There was a lot of secrecy surrounding this Ponzi scheme. People who chose to invest were given this paperwork where they had to sign non-disclosure agreements saying that they wouldn't talk about it with other people, that they wouldn't contact the quote-unquote clients, the slip-and-fall victims whose contracts they were allegedly buying. I see. So how was this scheme ultimately exposed? Uh, How did it get on the FBI's radar? Yeah, so it, it's really interesting. There there were two things sort of happening at the same time. Someone tipped off the Securities and Exchange Commission. It was uh, someone in Salt Lake City who had seen the investment paperwork of a friend and reported it to authorities because mm-hmm. they thought it was really sketchy. So that was sort of happening in the background. And then at the same time, there was another person, a man in Washington State, an accountant, who also saw this paperwork from a client, became really alarmed by it, and decided that he was going to report it to this whistleblower group called Hindenburg Research. The group's based out of New York City. They have sort of made their name by exposing financial fraud and cashing in on those whistleblower awards. So after the accountant told Hindenburg, they sort of launched their own investigation, trying to gather evidence of the marketers giving the pitch, working their way up to the top so that they could prove that the men allegedly at the top of this Ponzi scheme knew it was happening too. And then they turned that evidence over to the FBI and the SEC. The people at Hindenburg were known as Ponzi hunters. And part of the chase in taking down this scheme involved secretly recording the marketers giving their pitch to someone posing as a potential investor. The Washington Post obtained the video, which Hindenburg handed over to federal authorities. The basic structure is when an individual has a personal injury claim and they reach that settlement point, there's a 90-day waiting period there. Mm -hmm. And so Jeff, J&J Purchasing, and Matt Beasley, you know, they've Within weeks of this recording, the FBI starts knocking on doors. They go to Jeffrey Judd, and by the time they get to Matthew Beasley, he knows they're coming for him. The three officers go up to his front door, and Matt Beasley appears, holding a gun to his head. The officers tell him to drop the gun. Mm. And he sort of 
sweeps it towards the ground in this motion that the officers perceive as threatening. Matt Beasley told me that he was never pointing the gun anywhere but at himself. Whatever the case, the FBI officers shot him, and he retreated inside of his home, where he was for nearly four hours as he talked with a hostage negotiator over the phone. And so it was through those conversations that we learned a lot about how this fraud was perpetrated and why. Matthew Beasley told the FBI that he had these gambling debts that he needed to pay off, and that was the genesis of it. Mm. And then he admitted over and over that it was a Ponzi scheme, that none of the investments were actually real and sound, that he had made the whole thing up. It turned into a real standoff, it sounds like. Yep, yep. They kept trying to get him to come out, and he uh, was so ashamed and said he was not coming out alive. Wow. So how did the standoff end? At some point, the FBI was ordered in to go and bring him out, and they did that successfully. Matthew Beasley was taken to the hospital, and then he was taken to Nevada Southern Detention Center. The FBI charged Matthew Beasley with assault against a federal officer for what happened. That assault charge is the only one Beasley faces right now. No charges have been brought against anyone related to the alleged Ponzi scheme, which is pretty confusing to the victims, because for them, the fallout from all of this has been devastating. I mean, imagine you've been talked into this investment opportunity only to find out it was all a scam and your money is gone. There was one man I talked with whose stepdaughter had gotten him to invest. He's older. He invested 95% of his savings and, um, you know, his, his wife is in an assisted living facility for dementia. And now he is being confronted with the fact that, again, he has no money and he's considering selling his home. And he now has no relationship with his stepdaughter. Lizzie spoke to dozens more victims, including one woman named Anne Mabius. So Anne was a, a recent divorcee, became a single mom with four kids. And so she had planned to live off of the dividends of that investment along with child support from her ex-husband. She is a former teacher, has her master's degree, but she hadn't taught in more than a decade, got really used to being home at her kids and loved that she was able to be in their lives in the way that she could. Mm. But when the scheme crashed, she lost everything. She had put hundreds of thousands of dollars in and soon after found herself grappling with, okay, what do I do now? I need to go back to work. I'm running out of money. Then she gets an eviction notice. And she is just really emblematic of the ways in which the repercussions of this continue to play out in people's lives in real time mm. and will for a really long time. Was there a moment where it sort of crystallized for her that she realized that this was not a legitimate operation? Yeah. So even, um, you know, when the FBI raid happened, that was the first sign for her, along with many others, that this wasn't real. She had some hope. She was like, okay, maybe there is some misunderstanding. Maybe this is still real. I'm supposed to get my next check in a few days. Mm. I'll know if it doesn't hit my bank account. And so she waits, and the day arrives, but the money doesn't. And that's when she realizes that everything is gone. That makes me think about one of the things that she said. One of her quotes that I found really striking is that because we were all part of the same church, because we were part of the same community, all of the red flags were heart-shaped. <laughs> and I just, I thought that was such a good way of putting it. Everything, it sounds like, was sort of enveloped in this level of, I got this really good deal for you because you're my close friend, because I see you as a valued member of my community, right? 
Correct. And I I think that's something that a lot of people don't necessarily realize about Ponzi schemes, Mm -hmm. or at least I didn't realize it, which is that it's shrouded in this sense of secrecy and exclusivity, right? Where Anne had told me, you know, I felt really lucky to be asked and to be included. And I felt like I was part of this very special club. And so, again, didn't really think about all of those red flags instead was like, oh, this is someone I trust. This is a great deal. I'm so lucky they're letting me in. Of course I'm going to do it. Intrigue, deception, a call for justice. The story was sitting on Jeff's desk for a reason. It needed to be told. I think it was also really special in how the partnership ended up coming together in that, you know, I was the one reporting and writing, but I also worked really closely with a photographer out of Las Vegas named Rachel Aston. Mm-hmm. She did all the visuals. And so getting to tag team it and really uphold Jeff's story in these two big ways with these incredible photos and also with this reporting, I think it was really healing for the newsroom. We reached out to Jeff's newsroom. Glenn Cook, the executive editor of the Las Vegas Review-Journal, told us that his colleagues are missing him and trying to honor him. Jeff was a borderline, you know, legendary figure in our newsroom. I mean, everybody knew that he'd been in the business a long time, but he never carried himself that way. And he had an enormous passion for journalism. You know, it was his calling. He was 69 years old, and he told all of his colleagues that this was his job. This is what he always wanted to do. He was never going to retire. He was going to report as long as he possibly could. And so his uh, murder, you know, has left a a real void in our newsroom. It's a, a hole that can't be filled. Glenn said seeing Lizzie in the Washington Post bring Jeff's reporting home was emotional. The reality for us was we were not going to get to that story. We didn't have uh, the resources. We weren't going to be able to peel someone off of the story of Jeff's murder and, and the suspect in the case, Robert Tellis. We continue to put a lot of resources into reporting that part of the story. And I don't know when we would have gotten to this Ponzi scene story and when we would have been able to, you know, try to pull together the story that Lizzie ultimately did. We're just incredibly thankful that The Post made that offer. And uh, we will never forget that they did this for Jeff. You know, I uh, have stayed in contact with his editors and a few people on his team and then have also been emailing with his brother-in-law. And so I think that was really special, too, to feel like I got to know him through the reporting and I got to hear from the people closest to him about what he would have thought about the story after mm-hmm. it came out. And what did, they, what did they say? What did they share with you? They said that they thought he would have been proud. You know, you mentioned how when you first picked up all these notes from Jeff Gehrman's desk and how... He was on your mind a lot at the beginning of the story. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about how how Jeff was present through your reporting. I thought about him all the time. You know, I was constantly thinking, oh, I wonder what Jeff would think about this as I mm-hmm. learned something new. Or I wonder what Jeff would do with this. Or what what would he look for next? There was even one moment in the reporting where I had reached out to a source with a couple of questions, and they called me back, and they were like, you know, this is kind of weird, but 
I actually knew Jeff from a different story. He was so embedded in that community. I mean, Jeff, from what I've heard, is someone who gave his heart and his entire life up until the end over to this job. He believed in the power of journalism and telling stories that mattered and holding power accountable. And I think that isn't that what we all want to do with our work, to feel like it impacts the world in a meaningful and positive way. Mm. And to just have gotten the chance to do that for him, to carry the torch for him, I think that might be the most meaningful work that I've ever done. Well, Lizzie Johnson, thank you so much for doing this reporting and sharing a bit more about Jeff with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. You can read Lizzie Johnson's reporting for The Washington Post on Apple News. We'll include a link for you on our show notes page. 